For a few weeks now, we're going to re, uh, reopen our ongoing series called Learning to Love God's Word, where we just, each week we take a different book of Scripture and kind of ask the question, why is this there? Who was God speaking to when he gave us the book of Genesis or the book of Matthew? And uh, today we're going to ask that question about the book of Ezra. We're going to look at some more of the historical books of the Old Testament for a few weeks. And then we'll look at some of the letters of Paul uh, for a few weeks as well. And uh, so today, the book of Ezra. Jason's going to read for us a key passage from that book, from the ninth chapter of Ezra. As he reads it, you'll recognize that he's, he's addressing people who are asking two kinds of questions. One question has to do with comfort. In moments of despair, after failure, is there hope for a new beginning? Can, can God show mercy and grace to a people who are disgraced by their own failures? And then there's a second question, which is a question about challenge. Okay, if God in his mercy is going to give us this new start, what would that new start look like? What is God calling us into as he's shown us his mercy and grace? Those questions of comfort and challenge and the people who are asking them are in the background as we hear from Ezra chapter 9. Thanks, Jason. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ezra, chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. And Ezra prayed, Oh, my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. He has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, O our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land, and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet our God You have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord, 
God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jason. So we want to keep following up those two threads of comfort for hearts that are broken and challenge for hearts that are numb. And we want to use this prayer from Ezra to do it. But it might help many of us to stop for a minute and say, who's Ezra? Who's this person who's praying? Um, this, this is a book of the Old Testament that many of us may not be very familiar with. Um, it's, it's not going to, you know, sort of make your top ten list of favorite Old Testament books. I'm just guessing. Um, it's part of uh, a bigger story. Ezra and next week we'll look at the book of Nehemiah in uh, Jewish tradition have been considered one single book. And um, so if a synagogue were going through a, you know, book a week series, they would only take one week for Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to take two because uh, we probably don't know this part of the story as well as we need to. Um, What's the story? The story is about how God's people are being restored after tremendous failure. And so uh, they have been exiled from the land of Israel. And that's not just an abstraction. It means that God allowed two ruthless empires to root his people out of their land. First, the Assyrian Empire, capturing the northern tribes, and then the Babylonian Empire in 586 B.C. Sacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple, enslaves all the people, and transports them out of the land. And they are existing, some of them in slavery, uh, but all of them in misery. Ezra and Nehemiah tells a story of how God undoes that failure, how he restores the people. And it kind of happens in three phases. First, a group of people return from Babylon to rebuild the temple that's been destroyed and reinstitute worship. And that's led by people with strange names like Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel. Um, And later in the story, Nehemiah is going to come back to the land and build a wall around the city of Jerusalem that kind of uh, serves as not only protection and defense, but as a reminder that we are here to stay. God has replanted us in the land. But in between the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of those walls, a man named Ezra, if you read Ezra chapter 7, he's described as a descendant of Aaron, the high priest. So Ezra is a priest and he's a teacher of God's word. And he comes back to Jerusalem and his role is not to rebuild the building, but to rededicate a people to the purpose for which God has designed them. That's who's praying, Ezra, a guy who's come to bring comfort to broken hearts and challenge for hearts that have grown numb so that we can all together serve the purpose for which God has designed us. 
Why would our hearts be broken if we were listening to Ezra pray, if we were standing there in Jerusalem in the year 458 BC? Why would our hearts be broken? Because we have failed. Look at the first couple verses of Ezra's prayer. I'm too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, O God. Our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Lord, our guilt is so great we can't imagine how high it is. We can't imagine its breadth. We can't imagine how big something would have to be to block out our failure. What's Ezra going on about? Why is it that he thinks our sin is so serious? Our failure is as high as the heavens. Well, it has to do with the whole story of the Old Testament. We were created to be mirrors. Every human being on the face of this planet was created in the image of God. That we were created to be mirrors reflecting to each other what God really is like. That's what it means to be his image bearer. So that people would look at us and see reflections of who he is. And those reflections as mirrors should be accurate to reality. Reflecting what he's really like. Not what we think he's like, not what we want him to be like, but, but a real genuine likeness to him. We were designed that way, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us. But then something happens. We decide to start reflecting something different. The mirror is shattered and, and the light we reflect becomes dim. And the reflection gets broken. And pieces of the mirror fall away and we start to fill it in with our own imaginations. And suddenly people look at our lives and they don't see what God is like, they see what we are like. They don't see what God is like as he really is, they see what God would be like if we could make him how we want him. And it's that failure that we as a human race and that Israel as a nation have engaged in. Israel was planted in the middle of nations that were worshiping cracked gods, crafted gods, seeking life in things that can't give any life because they're lifeless, seeking fulfillment in a thing, an object, an idol, a statue, a sculpture, when we were designed to seek fulfillment in a relationship with a person. We were created to love this real God as he really is. Now Israel is in the midst of all these people who are worshiping false gods and their calling is to be the mirror again, restored, to show one more time as Adam and Eve were intended to do but failed to do in the garden. So Israel is planted not in a garden but in a larger land to be that mirror and now Israel has fallen into the same problem worshiping gods that are not gods I've over years had occasion to know many uh, friends who lived in Washington DC and they all tell the same story the God that's worshiped there is power and it's hard to live there without being infected and whether it's somebody who's lived there for just a few weeks, uh, maybe on an internship, or someone who's lived there for a few months or a couple of years, all the people I know who've lived there tell me the same story. 
there's a God there. There's a God there that, that says that, that uh, you could find fulfillment if you just had enough influence. If you could just get the right people to listen to you. Or, or if you just get people thinking that other people listen to you. If you could get that kind of respect, then you'd have life. And scripture says, no, if, if, if you have this relationship with this real God, then you'll have life. But here are all these little mirrors running around in our culture saying the real God is power. The real God is influence. The real God is respect from other people. The ability to be the mover and the shaker. You've heard about the Kobe steel industry this week, right? Over the past couple of weeks, it came out that, that their quality control data is all being falsified. So all these numbers they're writing down that are supposed to be mirrors reflecting what their product is really like. Hey, the numbers say the product is safe. You want to build an airplane out of it? You can. Go ahead. The numbers say that that steel's not going to fail when you subject it to the stresses of launch and landing. So build a train out of it. Get people to entrust their safety to it. It's safe. It'll protect you. It won't fail when you most need it. But it turns out the numbers are pointing to a product that's not that way at all. The numbers are pointing to a product that's inferior, a product that will bring you danger and risk of death if you entrust yourself to it. That's what it's like to be a human being, is to be false data pointing to an inferior product. Instead of pointing to the real God who can really bring you safety and life and who really won't ever fail you when you are under stress. Our lives have become these distorted mirrors reflecting the likeness of false gods. Power, influence, respect, wealth, relationships that can't keep us safe so what do you do well if you want that company to flourish again you got to root out all the false data watch how fast they are scrambling to fire everybody who had anything to do with falsifying the numbers watch how fast they are moving to root it all out this is what the exile is like God rooting his people out of their land in order to root out of their hearts any sense that the false gods they were worshiping were the right ones to worship, to call them back to a new start. And then we get this good news in Ezra's prayer, verses 8 and 9. Our guilt is high. It's higher than our heads. It goes all the way to the heavens, but God's grace is even higher. You hear what Ezra says? Our God has been gracious He didn't totally destroy us. He's left us a remnant. He's let some of us come back to the land to start over again, even though we falsified the data. We told the whole world, it doesn't matter what God you worship because any old God can give you all the life you want. And we were wrong. And instead of just obliterating us, he's been gracious to us. He's given us a new start. 
He goes on to say in verse 9, God didn't desert us. We were slaves. He didn't desert us. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia, the Babylonians who enslaved us. Guess what? The Persians overthrew their empire. God has used leaders of politics and nations to give us a new start. I mention that just because I want to say in passing, if you're not satisfied with what's going on in politics, don't worry. Don't worry. If if you don't like who's in control in D.C., don't worry. God's in control of all of that. We don't have to panic. Don't put our confidence or our hope in what the kings of Babylon are up to. Because God can use the kings of Persia to show us kindness, give his people a new start. It's not about what king's on the throne. It's about are we, as his people, reflecting the reality of who he is so that everyone who knows us can know it's not okay to worship any old God you please because there's only one God who will give you the life you so deeply desire. And God in his grace looks at us and says, in the past you have failed to be that kind of people, but I will give you a new start. Your failure stinks to high heaven. My grace is higher than that. I will remove your guilt and I'll give you a new start. If you failed in the past, it doesn't doom your future. If your family hasn't always been healthy in terms of finding your life in God, it doesn't mean you're doomed forever. If this congregation has failed in the past, it doesn't mean we're doomed forever to be an irrelevant church. God loves to look at our guilt and say, yes, it's high, but my grace is higher. Let me give you a new start. You want to start over? Yes. What does that new start look like? Well, now there's a word of challenge for us. Sometimes our hearts are broken and we're in despair. Can never start again. But sometimes our hearts are numb. There's some numbness reflected in Ezra's prayer A numbness that makes us unable to feel the reality of our failure and unable to feel the reality of God's grace. Ezra prays, verse 10, God, you've given us this grace. You've shown us this kindness. You didn't desert us. You set us free from slavery. You've given us a new start. But now what can we say after this? We have disregarded your commandments. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving our past failure. But guess what? We're failing again in the present. We don't feel how serious this present failure is. And we don't feel how glorious and wonderful your grace is. Because if we did, we would not be responding the way we are right now, Lord. Take away this numbness from our hearts so that we can feel the seriousness of our present failure and feel the full weight 
of the grace by which you have forgiven our past failure. That's what Ezra's prayer is about. What's, what's, the, what's the present failure he's talking about? Ezra says, your prophet said, don't give your daughters in marriage to the sons of the nations around you. Don't take their daughters for your sons. Because if you do, your sons and daughters will adopt the worship of false gods. That's what Ezra says. It's our present failure. Your your grace is great. Verse 13 says, You have punished us less than our sins have deserved. Your grace is great. And then comes the question. In light of that great grace, shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Wow. That sounds pretty racist. Doesn't it? Am I the first one to think that? No. Right? Like, so you ought to be asking yourself, is is this guy, like, is he mentally okay? Because you got all the book of Ezra, and we're only going to spend one week on it, and you pick this. Like, isn't there something easier than this? Yeah, there's stuff that's easier than this, but this really is at the heart of the book of Ezra. I want you to see the heart of the book of Ezra in one week. This is where we've got to go. Why is it such a big deal, this intermarrying issue? Well, first of all, let's recognize that it's not about racism at all. It is about whether we worship a God who can really satisfy us or worship other gods. Back in chapter 6, verse 21 The first time the Passover was celebrated after the first group of people came back to Jerusalem. We hear this note. The Israelites who had returned from the exile ate the Passover. Together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. So if I came back from Babylon married to a Babylonian woman who worshipped Babylonian gods and we're living now in Jerusalem and the temple is being rebuilt and we say together, we, we don't want to do this worshipping multiple gods thing anymore. We want to worship the one true God of Israel then there's not a problem with our being married to one another. The problem isn't about her race or her ethnicity. The problem is with what God are we worshiping? Are we falsifying the data by living back in the land of God's people and saying, it doesn't matter what God you worship. That's what got us rooted out of the land in the first place. We were failing in our mission. Why would God want to allow us to fail in the mission again? 
It's not about race. It's not about Ezra saying, you know what? There's one group of people who, who ethnically are superior to all the other ethnic groups. It's not about that at all. It's about reality, not superiority. Not every claim about God is equally true to reality. And God has given some people through his word, through the commands of the prophets, through the voices in the New Testament of the apostles, through chiefly Jesus, the living word. He has given his people real truth about what he's really like. And it would be wrong of us to say, eh, doesn't matter what God you worship. So I hope that's enough to see that the issue in Ezra's day was not one of racism and ethnic superiority or inferiority. It's really a matter of life and death. As we stand under guilt that goes as high as the heavens, are we going to say to people that God's like power and influence and respect can set you free? That'd be the wrong thing to say. That'd be false data. We can't do that. So, let's talk about today. How does this apply for us now? Um, if you are a follower of Jesus and you are married to someone who isn't, do you have to get a divorce? Let's go ahead and ask the question, right? Because some of you are asking that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12 says, point blank, no. No. If somebody who believes in Jesus, follows him, worships him alone, sees him as the one true access to the one true God, they don't have to get a divorce if they're married to someone who believes differently. No. New Testament speaks directly to that question. What about the next question? What, what, if, what if I'm not married yet? <laughs> what if I'm thinking of marrying someone who doesn't share my beliefs about Jesus? Is that, a, is that something I can do as a Christian? Sorry, time's up. <clears throat> I'm going to stop. Come back next week when somebody else will be preaching. What would scripture say to us about that? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 14, there's an image used there. It says, don't be yoked together with people who don't share your beliefs. Now, in the context, it's not talking about marriage. It's not talking about dating. It's, it's not talking about those kinds of relationships at all. Is Paul is saying to his spiritual children, don't be led by people who don't believe the gospel. Don't let somebody who doesn't share your beliefs be your primary spiritual life coach. Don't let them disciple you. Don't walk up to someone who doesn't follow Jesus and say, here's my heart, shape it to be like yours. Don't do that. Now, by extension, I would ask the question, if you're seeking to marry someone, do you think that person is ever going to shape your spiritual beliefs? 
Do you think you can share all of life with somebody and not share that area of life? So even though the, that text, 2 Corinthians 6, isn't directly speaking about romantic relationships or dating or marriage, I think the principle there would apply to those kinds of relationships. And I know that the moment I say that, I am breaking hearts or just making somebody mad. Because somebody in this room is planning to marry someone who doesn't share their faith. I don't know who you are, right? I'm not trying to smoke you out or something like that. I'm just doing the math, right? It's a big group of people and the likelihood is... Here's my first suggestion would be, be like those people going from Babylon back to Jerusalem and going, we need to talk. Can we talk this through? Here's why I love Jesus more than everything else put together. Would you share that with me? Hey, you know what? If you fiance, share that with your fiance, they might just say, that sounds like a great idea. I'd love to do that. Why do you love Jesus so much anyway? Tell me a little bit more about that. Possible that your fiancé, who's not currently a follower of Jesus, would become one. That'd be a great thing. That'd be a great thing. I would say it is hard enough to be a good spouse and a good parent when you are on the same page about the most important questions in life. I can't imagine trying to do that if I weren't on the same page with somebody now again you might find yourself in a marriage where you became a Christian after you got married and your spouse didn't that's great God works that way sometimes it doesn't mean everything is doomed Paul says so first Corinthians 7 there's a way to make this work I wouldn't choose to do that if I didn't find myself already in a situation like that, right? So let me just say it again. What are we talking about here? We're talking about commandments that God had given his people in the Old Testament that would enable them to be mirrors reflecting what he's really like. And God knew, you know what? If if you start to share all of life with somebody who worships other gods, at some point, what's going to come out is this kind of mixture of false data and true data. And that's not what the world needs. What does the world need? The world needs a heart that isn't numb. The world needs a heart that feels the full reality of our guilt A heart that feels the full reality of God's grace. That's where Ezra's prayer ends. O Lord, God of Israel, verse 15 says, You are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant, even though though here we are before you in our guilt. You hear the question? implied there God somehow you've been gracious to us to give us a new start and yet 
we are guilty people. And you found a way to be gracious to guilty people and still be a righteous God. How is that possible? The New Testament uses that language of God's righteousness to talk about Jesus and to answer that very question. God sent his son, Romans chapter 3 says, to be an offering for our sin so that he could be simultaneously the righteous God and the God who makes righteous, unrighteous people. Romans 3, 21 to 26. Go read it sometime. Walk through all that language. It's a pretty dense argument, but here's what it's saying. God made a way to give people whose sins reached as high as heaven a new start to make us right with himself and yet not lower his standards. God didn't say, you know what? You're good at being broken mirrors. I'm going to just be satisfied with a broken mirror people. He said, I'm going to send the truest mirror, the one heart that is never numb to the reality of who I am. I'm going to send my son into the world to put right what you can't put right. And in the context of Romans 3, Paul says, every other sin committed before Jesus came had gone unpunished. And then Jesus came. Wait a minute, wasn't the exile punishment on Israel's guilt? Yeah, but it was just a foretaste. It was punishment that reached higher than our heads, but not punishment that reached higher than the heavens. And then came Jesus, who bore the full wrath, the full weight of God's heart. For us. There's part of me that doesn't want God messing with my dating life, right? If I'm finding life in my girlfriend or life in a mistress or life in my fiance, I might not want to be told that real life can only be found in God. But when I see that that God sent his son to bear all the sins that had been committed beforehand, to experience on the cross something worse than exile, to experience something worse than all the punishments put together that had ever occurred before he came, that that Jesus did that for me, I just might be ready to say to him, I'll give you everything. I will let you tell me how to think about my relationships. I will let you tell me what kind of mirror to be. I will let you. 
lead me into every decision, every action, every thought, every word. Because you have been gracious and you have shown your kindness. So, don't leave here this morning saying, hate that church because they stuck their nose into my dating life this morning. Okay, hear, hear everything that I am saying because it's everything that the scripture is saying. You will never change the way you live and think unless someone loves you so much that you are willing to love them back. That's the logic that God has always used. I will love you with everything I have and then I will ask you in return to love me with everything you have. I will love you first and then I will ask you to love me back. If you want to talk more about dating, want to talk about more, more about marriage, let's do it. Come see me. Let's talk. Would love to do it. But that's not the main thing we're saying this morning. The main thing is, God can ask us to love him with everything we have. Because he has first loved us. With a grace that's higher than the heavens.